and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am so pleased to welcome Keisha Sutton James, a former media exec who has turned her talents to social activism. She's the founder and CEO of the Percy Sutton Foundation and a founding member of Daughters of the Movement, a group of daughters and granddaughters of civil rights activists, politicians, funders of the movement, and artists in the movement who share lessons learned from their own lives and the lives of their trailblazing ancestors. Keisha and her husband, Michael James, founder of Frederick Benjamin Grooming, have two daughters, Nola, 15, and Shelby, 11. They are raising their daughters where Keisha grew up, in the village of Harlem. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Keisha. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure, if you didn't pick it up from the name, Keisha Sutton James is my cousin, my baby cousin. And while I've known many of the guests I've had on this podcast for many, many years, you win the longevity prize since I've known you since birth. <laughs> and I've watched you grow up in the center of the political arm of our family as the granddaughter of Percy Sutton, a lawyer and activist in the civil rights movement and longtime Manhattan Borough president. I'm so happy to talk with you today about lots of things, your roots in political and social activism, its impact on how you're talking with your daughters about race, identity, and current events, and lots more. So, Let's get started with where you grew up. I, I know you grew up in an apartment building a few floors away from your grandparents. So was that the village that raised you? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yep, I grew up in Harlem, literally one floor below my, my grandparents, one floor below my great aunt. Um, and and my grandparents, you know, they played a big role in raising me, um, as did the village of Harlem. Um <laughs> I, they, they, the village of Harlem hugs me. <laughs> yes, and and still does as as you're raising your daughters there. So uh, by the time you were born, your grandfather was he borough president. Yes, he was borough yes. president. He was already about halfway through his twelve years. He's the longest serving um, Manhattan borough president in history, and uh, he was about halfway through that. It was about five years before he became the first black man to run for mayor of New York City. Our family's business, Inner City Broadcasting, I believe was founded um, right at the same time that I was born. I looked at the incorporation papers and I want to say, I know it was July 4th, which I thought was incredible, um, but I think it was July 4th, two weeks after I was born. Um, wow. So what was happening? <laughs> wow. So how were you indoctrinated into the political culture? I mean, you were little, you were in the, the middle of it. How early were you active in politics? So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I was active in politics, meaning I wasn't, you know, volunteering for campaigns um, as, a, a, you know, a youngster or even a college student. I didn't spend time, you know, working on campaigns. I was just in the middle of it. You know, there was, you know, stuff going on around me all the time. And I met people you know, who were active in politics. I, like one of my the memories that I remember kind of um, sticks with me the most is Jesse Jackson's 84 and 88 campaigns running for president. My grandfather was one of his mentors and, um, and was advising him all the way through that campaign, those campaigns. And he was always on the phone with Reverend Jackson. And, you know, there's those kinds of things um, that, that really stick with me, just kind of being I being in the midst of political activity 
whenever I was in his presence. Mm -hmm. And and I'll say also, he really indoctrinated me as well and shared with me, you know, the history behind everything, you know, his own life growing up in the Jim Crow South, but also, you know, the activism in our family, um, his work with the NAACP, Uncle Buster's work with the NAACP, Uncle Buster, otherwise known as Alexander Sutton. Uh, we have, we're a family with, with lots of creative um, uh, nicknames. Um, and so I just, you know, I, I was, I grew up understanding uh, that work. Oh, and of course his work as a, he told me when I was very young about how he had been arrested. <laughs> and of course I was like, arrested? what kind of trouble were you in and not realizing it was civil disobedience. And then he explained to me what civil disobedience was at a very young age. And I came to understand, you know, his work as a freedom writer. And I remember him going to the freedom writer reunions and bringing me back t-shirts and stuff. So that's kind of how I was indoctrinated into this activist and political um, kind of mindset in life. So, I know that uh, he spans so many different aspects of of activism. We know he was Malcolm X's lawyer. We know he 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 obviously worked from a a very strong core belief in in social justice. How, did he talk to you about sort of that kind of core? Did I mean you got to see a lot of what he was doing? But did he talk to you about um, why or or and and how did that impact the way you looked at the world? Absolutely. Um, he talked to me not only about, you know, his own why, but also that which he had learned from his parents. He talked to me about the importance of, of educating, you know, our, ourselves and our community, the importance of, you know, he always told me this story of how, um, of instilling respect and love in our own, in our own selves about how, um, S.J. Sutton, his father, would walk around um, San Antonio. Um, he was an entrepreneur and an educator. And in the Deep South, it, at the turn of the century, my grandfather was born in, the, in uh, 1920. You know, those these were the most highly respected people in the community, people who were educated and, and um, owned businesses. Um, and so his father, S.J. Sutton, would walk around town and um, he would tip his hat to everyone, including the ladies of the night who, that's the way my grandfather described them to me, very old school, that means prostitutes. Um, and, and the point was, and he, my, grand, my great-grandfather specifically said to my grandfather as a young child that, you know, even if people are not able to respect themselves, which he understood and they also explained was a matter of circumstance, that it's not that people don't just un- not respect themselves just because, but that life's circumstances have caused them to, you know, to devalue their bodies. Um, that even if people don't respect themselves, you must respect them and that you can, by example, instill respect into them. He talked to me about um, uh, uh, um, George Washington Carver and other, and other highly respected, you know, African-Americans and uh, what he was a major scientist um, with whom actually um grandfather's eldest brother worked um, on the uses of the peanut when George Washington Carver couldn't go to um, Russia on Russia's um, request. He sent my great uncle um, to work in his stead. He just, he talked to me about kind of the brilliance and the pride in our 
culture and uh, the racism he experienced growing up in the Deep South and um, his work as an activist in, in the NAACP, um, Uncle Buster's work as an activist in the NAACP. So I, I understood, you know, the why was his father said that essentially, I don't remember exactly what the quote was, that we must work for the injured among us. To those who much is given, much is expected. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, that was definitely a, 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 um, a tenant of our family. Yes, to those who much is given, much is expected. So, so let me ask you a, a sort of a trickier question, because I, I know um, how hard Percy Sutton worked on behalf of our community and our people and, and Americans generally. But I also know that when you are a person in public service, as he was, often the time you spend in public service can often be at the expense of the time you can spend with family. And I know that you um, are part of this group, the Daughters of the Movement, who share the legacy of being um, directly related to civil rights activists. But I can also imagine that you share the the circumstance of having very public figure relatives who are not home a lot. <laughs> and that that impacts, that helps the world, but it can impact their parenting and their, their families. Can you tell me a little bit about how his work in the world impacted your family and, and everyone at home? Yeah. Um, so clearly, um, so first of all, I'll say I'm blessed because I'm the grandchild, not the child. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I was super blessed because I grew up one floor below him and was the only grandchild for 25 years. Every single time I walked into his apartment for, I don't know, the first seven, eight years, he applauded me and said, there she is. It was like Miss America was walking into the apartment. So um, <laughs> that having been said, um, I'll say, you know, I don't want to speak for um, my dad and aunt, but I think that I'll be very frank and say that he was a rock star to the world. And I think that his parenting um, was his chief disappointment, if not failure. I know he wasn't nearly as present as um, as perhaps they would have liked or as would have been ideal, I should say, mm -hmm. would have been ideal. Um, and, and I know that my experience is very different, um, from theirs mm -hmm. and I'm grateful for mine, but I also recognize that, um, that there was a lot of sacrifice. Um, and that is, you know, people, one of the things that we talk about in the daughters of the movement is in fact that the sacrifice, you know, there's, we call it, you know, the blessing and the burden, um, of being, um, a, you know, the child. Uh, you know, and I have different burdens, um, but not as um, not as magnified as I would if I were his child. Um, and there's, there are lots of burdens that come with it and lots of blessings um, that come with it. Mm -hmm. So so how does that then impact having seen that, having had the vantage point of being a granddaughter <laughs> and, and as you grew up seeing how exciting and vital and interesting it was to watch that power in action, but also acknowledging the burden or the, the downside of the ability to parent with as much passion, as much time as, as you are um, parenting the world, if you will, <laughs> um, or trying to help the world. When you had children, how did that 
inform how you wanted to parent them? The number one thing for me is I just, I want my kids to know how loved they are. Um, I remember when they were young, I had an expression that I used to always, I'd go through who loves you, like at bedtime, who loves you? And we would run down like a thousand people <laughs> who loved them, you know, from me to dad, grandparents, aunts, uncles, you know, sister and God, of course. And then I'd always end it with, and don't you, and they'd have to say, ever forget it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it was important to me that I kind of drilled into them, I don't, you know, this knowledge, um, that they're loved. And I also, I, you know, I spoke it, but I also try to embody it, um, with attention and intention, um, and presence. It's very hard. Um, the presence part is hard for, um, you know, for people who work, it's not difficult during COVID because we all have to be together <laughs> constantly. <laughs> and that is, presents its own issues. Yes, and um, it's the quality of attention that suffers in COVID. <laughs> totally. Because we all have these machines in front of us constantly, several machines. It's also different because I'm a mom, I'm a woman, mm-hmm. and because the times are different. Um so the way, you know, the, the presence that is expected for parents now is very different from, you know, that which was expected for parents and for women versus men back when he was parenting. Um, it's And that's good and bad because now, you know, we don't, you know, he had my grandmother to be fully present. Mm-hmm. We don't have someone, a parent who is to- solely dedicated to parenting. Um, parents these days, do, you know, oftentimes don't have that because we need to have two incomes to... Mm-hmm to raise a kid these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you give your children, you've given them the core of love and attention. How have you talked to them from when they were little about race and about um, identity? And, 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 and how have you passed on those lessons of the why, why we are socially active, why there needs to be justice to your daughters? Um, well, first of all, I share all the stories I got my, got from my grandfather as well. Um, just because I, I, be, I don't know, I'm a person who's really connected to history and ancestors, whether they're ancestors I know, meaning my grandparents and such, or those who I know of. So I share history. Um, and I also, so I'll say, I'll say my, my conversation around race started not because I wanted it to, um, well, actually, let me take a, a step back before that. I always talk to them about kind of the beauty of themselves and their skin and their differences and the beauty of the when they were very little. I talked to them about how important it is that we're all unique and different because otherwise the world would be a freaking bore. Um, <laughs> and I would just be awful. Before I talked about race, I talked about differences as a positive thing. So they came to understand just, you know, different interests and different colors and different, you know, whether someone has freckles, whether someone likes to wear pants, whether someone likes to roller skate and someone likes to ride a bike, um, whatever they might be, whatever the differences might be. I, I, you know, I like to read, you like to cook, whatever it is. I talked to those different about those differences before they were, um, five, I'll say when they got, when my older one got to kindergarten, um, her school, which did a great job. Then I, um, I felt of talking about race, 
um, they introduced race and color and these issues in kindergarten. And I was like, oh my God, they've talked about, they talked about um, MLK and racism and all this stuff in kindergarten. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I now have to, I have to talk to my daughter about these really serious things that I was kind of trying to shield her from. They did a good job of, of handling it. I think I just extended that conversation. Um, and so meaning we, we took, we had this differences conversation and then layered on the fact that certain people thought that these differences were bad mm-hmm. and that as a result of that, they treated, you know, people with brown skin um, differently and horribly, in fact. And I said, they, you know, I told them like, they didn't let us, people who look like us, you know, eat in certain restaurants and they made us sit in separate sections and all this stuff. And that because of the work of people like their great grandfather, um, that has changed. You no, know, we're not all the way there, but that has changed. And now we all go to school together and blah, 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 blah. You know, I, and, I, but I did talk about the fact that it has taken the work of people like our ancestors. And even if they weren't leaders, there are people who, you know, are soldiers in the movement, most African Americans um, who've been in the country for, you know, more than a few generations have a story or have some connection to that progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked to them about what our family's role was in that progress. Wow, that that's great. So fast forward to now as um, we see another cycle of unrest born of social injustice. Your kids are older. They're 15 and 11. How, how are you talking to them about what's going on now? And, and how are they reacting? Um, so, right. They're 15 and 11. And my, my older one's um, hero and idol is AOC. And uh, so she's real far left on the spectrum, as are most you know, young people. My husband and I are, are news junkies, political news junkies. We spend every single night, we watch some kind, we watch actually not just some kind of news, like multiple news shows every night, starting at like five or six, MTP Daily, you know, PBS, um, MSNBC, CNN, we watch them all. Um, and we, so we don't just watch them though. Um, this is the part where my kids get really annoyed with me and my husband kind of gets annoyed as well. We watch and we pause and we talk about it. Um, so we talk about, you know, the history behind what's happening in the moment. Um, so let's, uh, for example, um, when Brett Kavanaugh was being confirmed uh, to the, the United States Supreme Court, which was a tragic moment in my view. Um, first of all, it took me back, very much took me back to sitting there with my grandfather. I remember walking into his apartment um, while the Anita Hill um, hearings were going on, while well, the... the um, Lawrence Thomas hearings, Lawrence yeah. Thomas hearings were going on, and Anita Hill was testifying. And um, so it was a full circle moment for me, you know, sitting there with my children watching this uh, spectacle. Um, and I don't mean spectacle in the GOP sense of spectacle. I mean spectacle meaning he should never have been considered, not to mention cons- confirmed. <laughs> um but we were, you know, I'm watching this and it took me back to, you know, sitting there with, uh, with my grandfather watching Anita Hill. But I paused the, the, the show um, to 
tell them about the fact that um, Mitch McConnell actually blocked um, President Obama's uh, nomination of Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and how hypocritical and corrupt that moment was, and how you know you've got to just. I talked to them about kind of all the tricks that are in the bag <laughs> of the GOP party. And I don't, forgive me if this is too political for your audience, but hey, you had no. me on. <laughs> It's an open mic. (laughs) There you go. So I talked about all of that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the, uh, okay. I love this story for lots of reasons. First of all, um, I love that you guys have a family news watching period because I think it is important, particularly as your children get older to keep them apprised of the news. Um, I don't think, and I've said this before that you leave it on 24 seven because that will drive anyone child, adult, crazy, but it really, it's really good to watch it together. Um, I mean, my family and I watched nightly news together and it's, it's a good bonding moment, but also I love the technology that allows you to pause the news and have a conversation in it real time, which, uh, if parents listening, you might want to take advantage of that because you can't stop it. And then it will just keep going. You can just elongate the news half hour to a news hour. Your channel yes. will never know that the news yes. is only half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, they roll your eye, their eyes as they get older, they'll roll your eyes and, Oh my God, mom, can't we just watch it? And like, no, you've got to, you got to get backstory, you know, and, and they will eventually read the backstory. So for my daughter, my older daughter, Nola, just, made my heart burst this summer when she elected to read the book Race to Incarcerate, which is a statistics um, dense and heavy um, book that actually was uh, Michelle Alexander's inspiration for her um, legendary book, um, um, The New Jim Crow. And she knew about the book and picked this book up at 15 and pushed her way. It was a tough book, but she pushed her way through it. And I'm so proud that now at 15, because of this, you know, kind of backstories, these backstory conversations, she's picking up, um, material. (laughs) Yeah. Source material. Yeah. 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 No, that, that's really great. That is really great. And so speaking of your children, just for the last few minutes, I want to switch to how they are doing in this COVID time. I'm really been thinking a lot about school children and their mental health in all of this. I mean, we're doing the best we can, but this is a, a really different world for them. How are your kids handling the prospect of uh, being in school remotely or, or are they in school remotely? So um, by the way, I appreciate your asking about my children and how they're handling it. I am not handling this well, but <laughs> yes, it's been really hard. Um, and it is going to be entirely, entirely virtual this year with the school kind of making some um, uh, in-person experiences, mostly for social reasons. Um, the kids are, I think they've adjusted, which to me also is, you know, a little scary. Um, but I think they've adjusted to the idea that they're going to be, you know, going to school through a computer and that this is what life is like right now. I know, um, that my older daughter, she was able to hang out with some friends in central park the other day. And she said, I really miss school. And she, and she came home and said, I really miss school. And she said, not, not virtual school, school, like going to school and seeing my friends. And so, um, you know, it's been hard. Uh, it, the, 
not just the virtual schooling thing is hard, but, you know, living in New York City through um, the worst of the coronavirus was absolutely terrifying, absolutely anxiety inducing um, for many members of our family. Um, and uh, including myself, I will say I've never, you know, having lived through 9-11 and other um, terrorizing experiences, I was never as traumatized as I was through um, coronavirus, where I felt that, you know, just opening the window, this airborne disease might get me, you know, I'm a cancer survivor, I'm an asthmatic woman, and it just scared the bejesus out of me. Um, so it's been, it's been hard for, for myself. And um, it, it was very hard on one of my daughters. Um, thank God for being able to, you know, spread our wings a little bit over the summer and find, you know, a little access to nature to gather with families safely in pods with breaks in between, um, you know, moving about masked and, and, you know, taking these precautions. We just, it's such a confusing and difficult time and I cannot wait for it to be over. So when I talk about this and I've talked about this with, uh, Dr. Carrion, child psychiatrist, it's really important for parents to figure out how they can be okay in the presence of their children. As, as Dr. Carrion said, it's okay to freak out. Just don't freak out in front of your children. <laughs> and so how do you gather yourself to be strong for them? And then how do you advise them to find a core that of strength to feel calmer? So here's my biggest challenge with my children, and that's the spiritual work. I have been on a spiritual journey, mostly since I had breast cancer almost four years ago. And um, I've been trying to, and I haven't been very successful at, I have to say, um, really instilling in my kids a spiritual practice that they can hold on to. Um, uh, I'm hoping maybe one day they will come back to it. I keep trying to, you know, get them to meditate and, uh, practice yoga and, uh, journal and read scripture and all the things that I know can center a person. Mm -hmm. But, um, truthfully, I'm the only person in the family that practices it regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, it's tough. I don't know. You know, I, I'd say if I were a traditional black woman, I, what I hear in my ear is, you make them do it. They don't have an alternative. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I don't know how to do that. And I want to just dig a little deeper there because you're broaching a topic that I really haven't talked about on podcasts, and that is the role of re- religion and spirituality between parents and children. When we, when my children were young, we homeschooled Sunday school because they really didn't like going to Sunday school. They would come with us to church, but they found church long and a little tedious and um, I offered them the option to go to Sunday school with some of their friends, but no one for some reason thought that that was a fun idea. And so we did it at home. And it was it was actually simple because there were so many resources. We had VeggieTales. We had Bible Monopoly. We had Bible Apples to Apples. Yes, there was Bible Apples to Apples. <laughs> and so there's so many games, you know, and the reason I did this in part, I mean, I really wanted them to have an exposure, but it was also because that traditional woman in my ear was like, you are not going to have children who do not know when they stand up in church how to say all the things that you're supposed to say in church. I am not raising children who aren't going to be able to to recite the litanies like they're supposed to. And so and and interestingly, now that they're all older, 
um, one of them is actually really drawn to church and, and is very spiritual. And, and the other two, I mean, we still say grace at the table as a family, and, and we always will. And they say it independently. And I don't say that as a badge of honor, but I just say that as the effort to sort of let them know that it's important without beating them on the head with it, I think is effective. So do not despair. They are not sitting with you now, but I, I would bet that when they are in a position to try to figure out what they really need, they will be thankful for all that you sort of encourage them to do. So, Well, one thing I know is that if you don't make it there yourself, God will find a way to bring you there. So, <laughs> whether it's for me or life, God will find a way. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. So back to them in COVID. I'm really interested in the school part because what everyone is focusing on now, which I think is a good thing, is the issue with remote schooling is the, the education is one thing, but the socialization process is really what is being sacrificed yeah. for a good reason. I mean, it's, it's, you can't get angry about it. It is because it has to be, yeah. but I'm interested in, you've said how um, their school is gathering the kids in small groups, but just for the socialization part, not for yeah. learning. Yeah. Yeah, so they're doing, I don't know what all of them, will, what they will be, but the school asked us for suggestions, like what would your kids like to, to come to school for? So I said, you know, I re, they did a survey. And, and, and let, me, let me back up and say, I want to acknowledge the privilege that, that I'm sitting with right here, right now, that our kids go to a school that's highly resourced. Um, so they have, you know, the resources to, spend on consultants and the this and the that and, you know, the technology and, you know, mm-hmm. everything um, to be able to do this. So the response I gave was, you know, for one daughter, um, uh, classes on, you know, uh, classes on social justice, um, another uh, classes on um, a dance class, for, perhaps. Um, the other daughter, a drawing class, and uh, she was interested. She's she did a, 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 a virtual class this summer on um, plant life. So I s- said maybe a plant life class. It sounds like they're going to kind of be all over the map and different gatherings for around um, kids' interests um, and age and age groups. So the good thing about being in well-resourced schools is that you can take away from them tips that can help people that aren't in less resourced schools. And that is, I really like the idea of parents trying to gather their kids in safe pods for social purposes. I think that if they can figure out a way to get a few neighborhood friends and preferably schoolmates, a handful of them together in a park or on a regular basis, they can supplement the, the, they can enable them to socialize and it can maybe ease a bit of the burden of having to sit in front of the screen for a long time. And, and, and parents can poll the three or four families to find out what activity they'd like to do. I, I, I like that. I, it goes to what I've said about in this, in this pandemic, I think all schools, regardless of how well-resourced they are or what their sources are, uh, public, private, charter, Catholic, all schools should just throw all of their suggestions up on some big whiteboard of community best practices because each little tidbit can help somebody <laughs> and and nobody knows what to do. So Keisha, fast forward um, to the end of the pandemic. 
and tell me where where you would like to see both your work with the organization that you have founded to honor your grandfather and your Daughters of the Movement. So one thing that I know I'm working on is a, a big festival around my grandfather and his centennial um, called Percy Fest, um, where we will hear from uh, speakers and entertainers and also be entertained by entertainers and, and um, uh, filmmakers and such all in the, you know, in the professional areas uh, in which he was active. So law, politics, activism, media and culture and um, and entrepreneurship, of course. Um, so that's one big thing that will be happening. And then but also in terms of the foundation that will be happening to drive some of the, the fundraising for some of the programming that that I will already be starting to do during the pandemic because with entrepreneurship um, and activism being part of, you know, his mission and his, and the, and the foundation's kind of core values and core focus. Um, Obviously there's tons of work to be done there right now, um, but it will be growing as we continue to, you know, to, as the country kind of re-emerges to physical and every other kind of health, physical, political, social, every other kind of health we can, we can imagine. I, that's what I envision in the next couple of years. And then a quick question about your children. Do you have any expectations that they will follow in your footsteps in terms of being um, politically active beyond voting? Yeah. um, I, if they wish, um, I, what I want for them is to um, be independent um, to have an impact in the world, um, to be at peace and productive. So if that includes, you know, politics or activism or entrepreneurship, whatever it in, whatever it might be, my husband's an entrepreneur, um, you know, whatever it might be that tickles their fancy, I just want them to be at peace, productive, make an impact in the world, um, and independent. exactly and with that i'm going to wrap it up keisha thank you so so much for this great conversation and um i really enjoy talking to you as always but i'm sure parents listening are able to take away so much from your experience and your advice so there's one more quick thing before we go you have to play the gcp bonus round ready (laughs) okay here we go first your favorite poem i have to be frank and say i don't know the name of it my great-grandfather wrote it and my my father rather has it on his wall, and it it reminds me of myself and my dad. And it starts um, it starts gathering brows like gathering storms, nursing a fury to keep us warm, and it goes from there. And it mm-hmm. makes me think about uh, my eyebrow <laughs> and my dad's <laughs> eyebrow and the fury and the intensity that lives not fury but just the intensity that resides in so many people in our our family, um, including myself. That is neat that your favorite poem was written by your great grandfather. Um, (laughs) Okay. Your favorite two children's books, and they can be ones you grew up with or ones you've read to Shelby and Nola. Yep. So they are both, I have so many, it's so hard to to narrow it down, but one is my granny went to market, which is a really great counting book. Um, that's very multi-culty. It's by Stella Blackstone and Christopher Core. And my all time favorite though, I think is called I like myself by Karen Beaumont. It features a little black girl who 
who's talking about all the different ways that she loves herself and all the quirkiness um, in her and how, no, you know, no matter what, no matter what she looked like, what she acted like, no matter what she saw in the mirror, she could have stinky breath and stinky toes or horns protruding from her nose. She would love herself. Ah, that sounds great. That sounds great. So thank you again, Keisha, for being with us today. I hope everyone listened, enjoyed this conversation that you'll come back for more. So please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcast and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under my name, Carol Sutton Lewis. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening. 